Uh, welcome to Beats, Rye, and Types. This is episode, I was going to say 11, but it's actually 12. <laughs> we obviously have our shit together. Uh, so today we actually have a special guest, Camille Fournier, a CTO at Rent the Runway, but also an awesome, awesome individual. And we were really excited to talk to her and just, you know, talk about lots of different things. Specifically today, we wanted to talk about consensus, which is an interesting topic because it's something that comes up not only in the world of computers, but also in people. So Camille also picked our intro song, which was by the Wrens. Why did that song ring true with you? Or why did, why did you think it was a good song for this episode? Well, it's, you know, I kind of chose it on a whim because I was, when you asked me to choose a song, I was like, oh, okay, I need to choose a song. Well, I, I unlike, unlike some people, I actually don't listen to music that much. I listen, well, I listen to a lot of um, baby songs like the wheels on the bus and things like that. That's, that's the majority of the music I'm hearing these days. Because I'm at work, I'm in meetings all the time. So, you know, it's really hard to uh, listen to music while you're at meetings. So anyway, I chose this song. I was like, okay, well, I need to choose a song. And I looked through some various Spotify's and whatever. And I was like, what is on my saved playlist? And I literally had only Meadowlands, the album by the Wrens on Spotify's saved playlist. And I was like, oh, well, that is a great album. And Everyone Choose Size is my favorite song on that album. And so I chose it. And then later I was like, oh, you know, actually, it's kind of a good song if you're going to talk about consensus, since it's about a group of people picking sides, <laughs> voting, as it were. So, uh, you know, but that was really not, not actually the intention. I really just thought it was a good song, good driving guitar beat, you know, something a little different from the, uh, the rap tracks uh, that are common in the cool kids in distributed systems world. <laughs> <laughs> Straight rock and roll. When we talk about consensus in computers, often we think about distributed systems as consensus is probably a, the biggest problem or one of the biggest problems that everyone tries to solve when we're talking about distributed systems. But I know that you worked on or are working on Zookeeper for a long time, and I'm interested how you got into that project or how you got involved. So I was at Goldman Sachs at the time, and I was working on a team that actually made a SOA framework, service-oriented architecture framework. So, you know, Goldman had a degree of service-oriented architecture throughout the firm, and uh, they had had this old framework, and they were moving to this new framework. I don't even remember the details. It was all very, like, uh, enterprise. <laughs> but, you know, one of the problems that people were starting to encounter was they would have services that you know across teams right and you're talking about where there's really a lot of communication required to coordinate releases of code and you would have somebody running a service that actually needed to support maybe two or three different divisions and maybe some of those divisions needed certain data that others didn't and trying to make the clients fully backward compatible could be really difficult you know when you again when you're in a big company and these kinds of things start to really become very painful and so we wanted to enable people to, instead of having to just hard code in the location of the services that they were depending on, we actually wanted to enable dynamic service discovery. You know, they had done a little bit of looking around and had thought about, okay, we should use Zookeeper. Um, so I actually didn't even make the decision myself necessarily to use Zookeeper, although I did like the analysis to say, we're gonna take this from one team who's using it internally and make it a company-wide product. So I started looking into it and I really, you know, I am the kind of person who, I don't believe that I understand something until I really like read through the code. You can tell me that something does a thing, but I will trace it through the code 
until I believe that it's actually doing the thing that you claim it does, essentially. Uh, which is actually probably a very good trait for someone who wants to work in this particular type of software because it's all about the very, very exacting details. And it's actually pretty complicated and hard to understand. You know, long story short, we're using it, and we're using it in a very enterprisey way, so we need things like ACLs and stuff like that to really work, and it actually kind of didn't work <laughs> when I got into the project. So I, you know, made a few bug fixes around that area, and then uh, someone came in and reported a pretty big error with certain, I don't even remember the details, something about taking snapshots and having, you know, uh, masters go in and out of masterdom, as it were, and I ended up like kind of putting my headphones on and really digging in for like two weeks to debug and figure out what the heck was going on with that problem and actually like walk through and explain why this was a problem given the code the way it was written. And that's kind of how I just got into like really into the project. So long story short, I was writing a big, you know, distributed discovery system, service discovery system for Goldman Sachs, and I'm very anal. So <laughs> <laughs> Why, why do you think consensus is such a hard problem in, in computers? I, I've been thinking about it a lot, and it seems to me like the people problem of consensus, like actually getting people to agree is not that different than the getting computers to agree problem. But it's interesting because we try to make, make science around it to, to make it work and make it work consistently, but it doesn't. It seems like it doesn't always, just like with people, it doesn't always work the same way either. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is one of these, these areas where, like, the devil is in the details, you know. The original consensus algorithm that everyone maybe or maybe not studies in school, but is Paxos. And Paxos is famously complicated. I think I can understand it if I have the paper in front of me and I'm like tracing through it, but I certainly couldn't just explain it over the phone to anyone. And then Zab is actually the algorithm that Zookeeper uses, and it makes some simplifying assumptions over Paxos, but it's still pretty complicated. And in particular, the complexity in these things comes in not just in the algorithm itself, although the algorithm is kind of complicated, because you have to deal with all of these distributed failures, right? This is not about a single system where there are very few failure domains. There are so many failure domains that you have to consider to make sure that you're really, really doing the right thing. And I think that's where people get hung up. So recently, you know, Raft is the new hotness in consensus. It's a new uh, simplified algorithm out of Berkeley. Stanford, sorry, oh, my bad. Stanford, California, they're all the same to me, you know. So anyway, they, uh, you know, came up with this new, more understandable consensus algorithm, which is awesome, and it is tr more understandable, and it's been pretty well, you know, they, they even did like human studies of like, we're gonna teach you Paxos, we're gonna teach you Raft, you know, students, which one can you actually remember more quickly? And they all could remember Raft, which is awesome. And there's been a bunch of people now implementing that in systems, and I think it's great, like that is helping these systems be a little bit easier to create, but at the end of the day, distributed systems are never gonna be easy to create because of all of the failure cases that you have to think about and that you have to handle that are beyond a little bit the scope of the algorithm. When you're building a system for people to actually use, it's like not just about does the algorithm that it implements like do exactly the right thing, it's also like, and when a human operator goes in and does crazy shit to it, what happens, right? You know, in the real world of putting this thing into production, you know, what goes wrong that you maybe didn't predict that you actually have to change your system to be able to deal with because the humans dealing with it are, they're just not gonna be capable of handling, tolerating this kind of 
outage or failure or whatever. One of the things that I saw you like talking about and pushing before a lot of other people were, which I think is uh, like an interesting practical thing that falls out of experience with actual distributed systems is the, the idea or reminder that, you know, your client is a member of the distributed system, right? And that like when you're working on the Zookeeper, Zookeeper client, for instance, one of the things you have to try hard to avoid is your client behaving badly and doing all kinds of terrible things to the to the server and then other clients being un- incapable of accessing the server because of the way your client is behaving, which like it's funny because Aaron and I kind of cut our teeth building a distributed system together. That was like the first big thing we either of us built, we built at the same time and or we worked on the same thing and it took us a while to, you know, we realize, okay, up front we're designing clients for this thing. We need to put like a lot of effort into making sure that some programmer isn't really, it's not super easy for someone to just accidentally hose the entire thing by doing the wrong thing. And that's actually a bulk of the work that I personally spent on the system was trying, I had to write a library from scratch, but in order to, part of that was trying to say, okay, you know, what can we do so that when everyone is using the system at the same time, not only can we provide them with a clean interface, but one that doesn't allow them to like knock the whole thing over too easily. Yeah, it's actually funny. I was uh, talking to a couple of the folks on my team today and they were like, we're talking about whether we need to create an API, like we're talking about APIs on top of APIs specifically, like do we need to put an API on top of the Elasticsearch API? And I was like, yes. Yes, just do it. <laughs> you don't want, like exposing the bear API uh, often leads to pain exactly for as reasons that you were discussing. <laughs> I think also it's funny because it's, uh, you know, when you're learning programming, we were talking about like being a beginner programmer last time. And when you're learning to be a programmer, you your first instinct is to always assume that everything is going to be okay and program against like the best case scenario basically like oh everyone has chrome the latest chrome you know and i'm gonna i'm gonna build this website that has all these animations and is you know takes all advantage of this latest features but then once you start diving into distributed systems it's kind of like you really have to reset yourself to think of exactly the opposite I have to program against the worst case scenario, which is that not only is the system going to break apart in unimaginable ways, but the developers who are working on it are going to break it in in unimaginable ways too. Yep. You know, you've also written a bunch about, you know, the the team side of things, and I've really enjoyed reading a lot of your posts because I think they're very well-reasoned and very honest, which I appreciate more than anything else, I think, in the current scope of writing about technology and managing teams. So how, how's that going? How's, how's running a big team at Rent Runway? What, what kind of interesting things are you guys running into these days? <laughs> oh, it's fun. Actually, like, so I've been with Rent the Runway for about three and a half years and leading the team for almost three years now. And it has been exhausting. But, you know, I I read your blog post today (laughs) um, about the exhaustion. I definitely understand where that's coming from. But it's actually, it's gotten, it's gotten to a point where I'm like, I feel like I've finally gotten kind of good at some of it, which is great. You know, I sort of starting to learn how to manage managers, which 
is definitely one of the hardest things I've ever had to figure out how to do. It's like, how do you tell the state of a team only via really indirection? Like, you know, because to be quite honest, I, I actually view part of my job as figuring out how to do my job without killing myself by working too hard. It's interesting, I like see a lot of talks and talk to a lot of other engineering managers and CTOs and whatnot. And a lot of times the way people get around the hard parts of their job is they just work really hard. And I just know that I don't have, I will burn out. Like I know I have a very sensitive burnout edge and I can't work 80 hours a week and like be on all the time. Like I, the standards that I set for myself in the work I do are too high to do all the work all the time. So, um, so I have to kind of control, control and constrain and I have a two year old son who I'd like to see, you know, so I've had to figure out like, okay, how do I really like work through indirection of people instead of just like reaching through the indirection and like looking at pull requests and like, you know, having millions of one-on-ones with their team members or going to every single meeting. Like, how do I just like take what that person is telling me and try to understand the state of things and when I need to actually intervene just by what I'm hearing from this one possibly unreliable source. So I'm not sure that I'm good at it. I'm getting better at it, which has been, that's been like a huge, huge learning curve for me. Yeah. It's interesting when you think about when you're getting information from such a controlled group of people, it's a lot about trust that you have a trust and knowledge of who this person is in some ways and what they're, you know, knowing what they're not telling you as much as what they're telling you too. Cause you know, certain people have, especially in the wild world of developers have a, and engineers have like a, a, a wide range of their ways of communicating, I would say yeah. to be gentle about it. Do you think it's about actually knowing the person? Like how have you pulled out that information? Do you have to be really direct with them? Like, is it about setting, setting some kind of, communication pattern or my my kind of like theme of my last several years has all been around clarity i sort of believe that if i think about a problem for long enough and i study it and i examine it i can clearly articulate and that kind of goes for everything for me a little bit this is my person my personality is like i really want to understand all facets of something as much as i possibly can I think what, you know, what I've learned from that as managing is like, it's really important for me to have a clear picture in my mind of what I expect from them and make it as clear as possible to them what I expect and then force them to provide back to me and to their teams that same level of clarity. What are you expecting from your teams and when do you, how do you know when you're getting it and when you're not getting it? Because I think it's just so tempting to be like, well, you know, we slipped on this release, but you know, like things happen. And it's like, yeah, of course, things always happen, by the way. Like this is not about, oh, you missed a date and therefore you must be punished. But there is a level of like, so often when you dig into the things that happened, it was, oh, actually like people just didn't really understand that this date was really important and that this should have been the prioritized work over other things. Or, you know, actually this person was never talking to this other person and you, the manager or someone else, like actually knew there should have been a communication there and it just never happened because you weren't really clear about what needed to happen to get this thing done and therefore you weren't clear to your team. And, you know, so 
there, I mean, there's definitely a level of understanding the people that you're working with and being able to communicate in a way that they're going to hear, but almost everyone will hear anything better if you're really clear about what it is and if you ask for that same clarity from them. What I, what I found, too, in, in that role, and I, I mean, I possibly never did as good a job of being clear at myself, but I also think the, the clarity fills the void of what people want to do themselves and what how they want to understand a problem. And it's like, if you aren't clear and aren't very specific about what you want and what the goals are, not only will they not understand it, but they'll make up every possible solution that isn't the thing that you want. And that's all, often the biggest problem is just people filling in the void of, and that becomes gossip and whatever it is, like things that aren't the actual clear specific thing. It's like, Anything else will come to mind instead of that. Yeah. When, when we invited you to be on this show about consensus and you, you probably started to think, you probably thought, oh, well, they'll definitely ask me about Zookeeper. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, you probably expected some questions about, you know, management and the people side of things. But did you come up with anything that you hoped we'd ask you about or did you have it? Did anything come to mind that you're like, oh, this would be an interesting, this will be an interesting thing to, for us to discuss? I'm, I'm just curious what you're, you know, because it's, it's, it's tempting for us to be like, oh, she's a manager and she wrote a zookeeper a client like let's talk about how you know they relate to each other but i'm i'm curious if you're if anything like if the way that you think about the idea of consensus has has changed as you've gotten more experience and uh kind of been able to see a new perspective on it like you know i i think when you're a beginning manager you're like yeah you know consensus that's like that's what we need to come to right but you don't always have the opportunity to to, to do that? You know, what I've actually been thinking about very much, even very, very recently, so I'm uh, speaking at Craft Conference next week, which is like a big software development conference in Budapest, Hungary. So I'm, I'm really excited and I'm giving, I'm actually talking, uh, the, the topic that I'm going to do is consensus for the skeptical architect. So I have a talk that I've done called Zookeeper for the skeptical architect and I've revised that to talk a little more generally about consensus systems because there are, you know, beyond Zookeeper, there are now some other popular open source alternatives and just talking about it sort of philosophically. And as part of the work, I've been researching etcd, which is one of the new sort of raft-based, written in Go, HTTP access, you know, consensus systems. I think they actually call themselves a key value store possibly. And as I've been, you know, reading that and researching like what is it that people you know, why are people using this beyond the fact that it's a new cool thing, right? You know, what are the, are there aspects of it that we should be thinking about taking back into the zookeeper community because they are useful for people, right? Like, and what, what that has gotten me thinking about, and I've been having these long conversations on the zookeeper mailing lists, is how hard technical open source product management is. <laughs> so, you know, when you're thinking about consensus in those communities, there is a level of, if I had the time to do the work, I could probably like do the work well enough that we would take the solution. <laughs> uh, I don't have the time to do the work, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to inspire the team to like get some wheels turning and maybe get somebody who works for like a company who actually uses and depends on Zookeeper, like 
Cloudera or Hardenworks to maybe say like, oh, you know what, we could have like an intern or someone like work on adding some new features to this product that is kind of a key part of our business that might actually make our systems able to use it better. And just trying to like get those ideas out there and get everyone to understand that I'm not actually trying to propose necessarily the best or more most correct or whatever thing, because I'm actually trying to propose that we think about enabling HTTP access. I think one of the challenges that's very clearly come out as I've been doing this research on etcd is that a lot of people struggle with Zookeeper because you have to have this thick client. We have a thick client to Zookeeper. It's really hard to use without a thick client. It's really hard to use in languages that don't have great support for threads. And even if they do, to be quite honest, it's a hard problem to reason about. You have this complex state machine that has to live in your client. It's really questionable as to whether that is, I think that is useful and necessary, but not for everyone and not for all problems. And I want people to use Zookeeper as a solution. Like I work on, I continue to volunteer for a project that I do not actually personally use in production right now because I believe in the project. I believe that it is a good system that provides a lot of value that people can make a lot of, you know, that people can get a lot of value out of. But I also think that like we should look at the needs of the community as a whole and try to evolve the system to match those needs. And you know, there's it's been kind of a it's been a conversation to sort of say like, hey, I'm not just going to build this because unfortunately I don't have the time to do that. I wish I did. That would be awesome. Um, I don't have the time to go away for two months and write a bunch of code and be like, here's my patch for HTTP Zookeeper. But I do want to try to convince the community that like. Yeah, it's not as good as a thick client that has some downsides, but people want this. There are, you know, there are people out there that are saying we want to move out away from Zookeeper because the Ruby client is just so hard to use or whatever, right? I don't know, I haven't don't have a philosophy yet, but that's a big thing I've been thinking about in census when it comes to like, you know, this is actually in a lot of ways more similar to your systems consensus problem than it is to my problem of managing to consensus because for better or worse, like I don't work in a holacracy. I don't work in a like, you know, I am the manager. I can, if I really have to, make the final call. My CEO, if she has to, can make the final call. We do have the ability to have a person sort of override the vote. Doesn't happen very often, but you know, in this open source community, there is no one person that can override the vote unless maybe the person who can actually do the work and has the time to do the work and really act. The other day on Twitter, I, th I think you were asking for resources about similar things or something like that, and I forwarded you that link to Brian Getz's talk that he gave at ClojureConj, actually. Well, I said strangely before, but it's ClojureConj, and he talks about, you know, he's this quote-unquote steward of the Java programming language, so his job is some combination between these two things. Like, he's responsible for making final decisions, but is also responsible for like, you know, representing the project to a whole lot of different constituents. And he had a funny slide in that presentation where he's like, here's what people think I spend my time doing. And like 35% of the pie chart was like smoking cigars in shady back rooms <laughs> and, you know, that kind of thing. And he's like the, I, I liked the part that he said about how the reason why everyone's, you know, this might seem obvious, but the reason why everyone has such passionate, passionate beliefs about how thing, the direction things should go in and how different they are from each other is that there are very few people that have the purview of being able to see what all of those different things are, right? And so it's really hard to see outside your bubble if you care or don't care passionately about, you know, the addition of an HTTP client to Zookeeper, you know, it, it's simply, 
typically anyway, it seems to be a matter of perspective. And I, you know, I think it's cool to think about, uh, you know, speaking of etcd, like a cool thing about it is that it was, you know, it was capable of being constructed from the ground up because someone before them decided to design design a consensus algorithm that is, you know, designed to be comprehensible, right? Like just the the idea behind the coolest thing about Raft to me was like, wow, a PhD student decided to design an algorithm based on like, you know, some known basic axioms, right? The whole idea was, I want this to be able to be understood by people that are going to eventually implement it. And like the speed at which it happened is crazy because of Twitter and all this other stuff like that never would have happened, right? Like, you know, Zookeeper is Zab, which is a variation on Paxos, which was written, what, 25 years or something before the algorithm was written on paper. And this is probably within this the, a year. I think rap, rap, you know, the Go Raft implementations, I think, started to be written before Diego was even, like, actually given his doctorate, right? <laughs> so before it was even, like, before, like, the gods on high at Stanford even said, like, you can have this doctorate degree, it had already been implemented in, like, the newest systems programming language. So, I mean, it's kudos to you for being, like, for taking the time looking into that, because I think a lot of people in your perspective would be like, well, I know what I have works, so what are we possibly going to learn from this new stuff? And Aaron and I have been talking a lot about that recently. So that's cool. I mean, I could definitely see how an HTTP proxy front-end thing for Zookeeper could be anathema to some of the people that uh, work on the project, but it's cool to try to influence it from that perspective, even... You know, I think a lot of it is like, you know, you're probably you're upfront about how you're not going to be the one to implement it yourself, but passionately arguing for it, I still is think I still think that's cool. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think, uh, you know, I know Brian from my past life at at Goldman a little bit. He, uh, we had a bunch of people at Goldman who were very like pushing very hard on the Lambdas implementation in Java. You know, I got to chat with him when I was at Philly ETE last year about. The, you know, Java and the JVM. And like, you know, Brian, I, I feel like has a very similar attitude to me in that like, we're trying to create, I want to create products that people can use that enable things to happen that can think about both the like, this tiny startup that just wants to get started and get something on the ground and going, as well as like the company that actually has to think about maintaining this for a long time. You know, there's a lot of open source projects out there right now that, uh, to be quite honest, are very focused on the tiny startup. I, for, in my mind, a consensus system is, you know, build, building consensus systems for tiny startups. Not that there are a lot of people doing that, but, you know, the system that we're building, I want to be useful for, for anyone, but I also feel like it is, it is an important thing to be thoughtful about when you put it into your environments. But, you know, I do want to try to have a wider purview and learn from the community and, you know, create great products uh, no matter what it is. It's fun to, it's, that technical product management is not a thing that I, that I get to do too, too much. So it's definitely fun to do it with the community that I, I do still like fundamentally believe that the Zookeeper community has some really, really good people, you know, involved in it. And there's a lot of value in the blood, sweat and tears that have been shed over the product. <laughs> For sure. I think it's funny that, you know, you talk about these new projects too, and it's like, no one, no one's gonna say on the README that this is for tiny startups, and it will fail when you get to thirty people and two hundred uh, clients or two hundred nodes or whatever. You know, it's interesting that Zookeeper has always, I think, t 
taken a very and the community around it and java to it to some extent has taken this approach of being like we might not be for beginners but you know we're gonna you'll you'll be good when you hit you know the netflix scale or whatever you know and that's that and that's a merit merit too but you know what people want as young developers or the people who are actually implementing these in these startups want that ease of bootstrapping and that first thing, which is maybe what HTTP gives you because it's just a no-brainer to to write a client for that as opposed to having that thick client. Yeah, I think uh, we. I like to talk a lot about, or I, people. A lot of people ask me about uh, opinions about certain distributed databases and stuff, and it's really interesting to think about what that initial interface buys you in terms of. Uh, are people going to end up actually using the product? You know, being right and having that architecture that works only at that giant scale isn't going to get you like the kind of uh, user base that you know some of these projects are trying to get. So you can think about the database that's really easy to turn on. A cynical way of looking at it is that you're going to design a database that you want people to use, right? So what do you focus on first? You you can choose one of you know making it easy to start or making sure that data corruption doesn't happen, right? So uh, you, do, you do the thing that makes it easy to start, get a bunch of people using it, maybe convince some businesses to buy it, and then figure out data safety later, right? Or you design it from scratch to be super safe, but only, only complete maniac nerds know how to like even get it going. <laughs> and then, you know, what, so it is, it is interesting, right? Because I think we're starting to see things that cut between those two extremes a little bit more than it seemed like we were capable as a community of doing like whatever 10 years ago. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right about that. I think people are finally like waking up to the, oh yes, nerds need salespeople and salespeople need nerds a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, and, and we all need more UX people than any of us has access to. <laughs> so I, I actually had one question. So you guys also talk about food in this, yeah? Yeah, yeah, we usually do. We do. Yeah, we usually. do. Well, okay. I'm gonna. I was thinking about this. This may be totally distasteful to you, but perhaps some of your listeners. My favorite. My favorite recipe is the Balthazar steak tartare. Google it. I don't like capers. So I always take the capers out. Do it with. Uh, do it with boneless short ribs. I like it with boneless short ribs and not filet mignon personally. Um, and serve it with salt and vinegar potato chips. Oh man, nice. that sounds amazing. And it is delicious if you are comfortable eating large quantities of raw meat, which <laughs> I have done for many, many years and I have not yet gotten any kind of food poisoning. I have not died. So, you know, so there's my, uh, there's my contribution to your food talk. I'm sure you guys have more, more nuanced and, uh, and difficult food talks to do, but... Uh... <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> Is there a raw egg on it too? What's the recipe? Does it does it have an egg on it? Uh, yes, okay. it has. You actually create a mayonnaise. Um, so you yeah. So you you know use the use the tiny mayonnaise hole in your food processor, and obviously there's some eggs and oils and a little little bit of hot sauce. We actually I think when we do it, we actually put the anchovy in the mayonnaise. Um, to avoid having the tiny the bite that is like anchovy too much anchovy anchovy explosions yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, that that is my that is like my the easiest recipe to describe very quickly that I think is really delicious and the salt and vinegar potato chips are the trick I actually we actually learned that from the butcher at Dixon's Meat in Chelsea Butcher 
he's the guy that we we go to and uh my husband's always like oh we're, we're making steak tartare like which cut do you recommend today uh and and they always say oh and eat it with salt and vinegar potato chips so uh, I think we have to ask all future guests for a recipe. That's a good. That's a good idea. I think you you're helping us innovate. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> what can I say? I'm an innovator. <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right. Well, so yeah. Thanks again, and thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.